Zoe Daniel has just returned from five years as the ABC's correspondent in Southeast Asia. Zoe has reported on elections, civil unrest, accidents and natural disasters across the region, Africa and Southeast Asia. She has also just published her first book, Storyteller, which we're delighted to be launching here in Sydney tonight. It's a memoir of her experiences as a foreign correspondent, wife and mother. Peter Lloyd has been a reporter with the ABC since 1988, when stories were written on typewriters. <laughs> Peter was a correspondent in Southeast Asia and South Asia for seven years, and his fascinating book, Inside Story, describes that period in time. In Australia, Peter's been a host and reporter for The World Today and PM, and he's recently joined the ABC's national reporting team to deliver stories for the 7 o'clock news, Late Line and 7.30, as well as radio. Before we dive into Zoe and Peter's conversation, please welcome Shona Martin, publishing director of HarperCollins ABC Books and a former journalist to say a few words about Zoe's book. Thank you. Um, it's obviously a great privilege to be here tonight at this event and a very appropriate um, place to officially launch Zoe's book um, here in Sydney in front of an audience of people who are interested in reporting and in freedom of the press. Um, Zoe's book, Storyteller, which uh, we've just published on ABC Books, um, tells of her transition from an ABC rural reporter to becoming, becoming a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia and Africa, um, places which are fraught with difficulty when it comes to reporting and covering things, and all the more so if you're also the mother of two small children. Um, Zoe's book is compelling as she takes you to places that um, we've often seen um, covered on the news but never seen the backstory. Some of the places she's been in have been truly scary and she writes very honestly about those dilemmas. In fact, um, sometimes there is a school of um, foreign correspondent journalism, and of course I don't count you in this, Peter, um, where people talk in a gung-ho way about, I was there and I did this. Um, what is so compelling about foreign correspondents who write truthful memoirs is that they take us there behind the story, and that's what Storyteller does. And it shows that even um, in the most difficult places that you may cover as a journalist, you still see glimpses all the time of wonderful humanity and the triumph of the human spirit. So thank you for inviting us to um, have Storyteller included in tonight's event. And I'll now hand over to Peter and Zoe. Uh, can I begin tonight by, by thanking you all for your attendance here? Um, it, it is, of course, a school night, so there are many other attractions in, in Sydney um, which, which could have your attentions, and I'd like to express my appreciation, and also on behalf of Zoe as well. Uh, you, you have uh, taken some time to, to share with us, and we'll share with you, and I hope it's a valuable experience for you. Tonight, we're here to talk about what it's like to be a reporter outside of Australia. Aside from my years on the subcontinent in South Asia and Zoe's in Africa, we have some things in common, and that's the fact that we both spent many years covering Australia's backyard, Southeast Asia, the ASEAN states, and also Aki and Pearl and Jack and Tom. Um, we didn't do this alone. This was um, very much, in both of our cases, a family assignment, and it has very much impacted, I think, on the kind of book that Zoe's produced, and certainly had a, an impact on the book that I produced a couple of years ago. Zoe and I have both covered elections. We've both been in places where democracy is, is not is absent or is understood in ways other than the way that we understand it here in Australia. We've both seen the unrest, the disasters, the accidents and some of the more mundane yet fascinating aspects of life and other cultures which we bring to you in our stories. 
The perils of reporting on both of us, I'd say, are both uh, personal and professional. Personal in, in the sense they had the effect on us in some kind, and professional in the sense that those that we uh, interacted with paid a price, um, sometimes higher than others, for their choice to interact with us. Uh, they spoke up, they stood out, and they lived with the consequences of those actions. And tonight, I'll be, I happily will engage with you with, with any of your questions about me and my book and my story. Um, but this is Zoe's book launch. Storyteller is the book. And I'd like to begin by asking Zoe to tell us a story. Zoe, tell us an anecdote of when you felt most at peril in your time in Southeast Asia. I felt most at peril in my first couple of weeks in the job as Southeast Asia correspondent. I had been a stay-at-home mum for three years. Uh, I'd come back from Africa and, and my husband and I had spent 12 months in Melbourne and then moved up to Darwin for a year and then we went to Cambodia for his work for a year and during that time we had two babies. And then I suddenly got the job in Bangkok and arrived at the beginning of 2010 with a three-year-old and a one-year-old and launched instantly into covering the civil unrest in Thailand. Uh, we arrived a couple of days before a state of emergency was declared uh, and uh, basically I spent the first two months of the posting uh, wearing a flak jacket and a helmet running around at what became an urban conflict zone as protesters and uh, police and soldiers faced off in the city of Bangkok. Um, I think my scariest moments were times when there were unexpected skirmishes between the military and the protesters. Civil unrest is extremely difficult to cover because you never really know uh, where the danger is and what will happen next. It's extremely volatile. And we found ourselves a couple of times in the line of fire uh, between the army and the protesters. And it was very scary and very dangerous. Journalists did get shot and killed. Um, and there were a number of times during that where I really did think, um, only weeks out from being a stay-at-home mum, what on earth have I done? Am I going to make my children orphans? And, and that is a very scary thought. It's presumably, I mean, we both lived in the same soy, the same street in Bangkok, in Soi Songkhil. That's yeah. right. Um, is it different when you encounter these workplace challenges in the place that you play in, you know, the park's not very far away where we took, we took our kids, the place where we buy our coffee, the place where we eat, these mundane things. It's as if, you know, if you were in Sydney, Macquarie Street, and all of a sudden there's a shooting match, it's a bit different to being, um, going somewhere else, the other, and confronting these things in stories. Was that a weird thing for you? It was very strange. Uh, the red shirts built barricades all around the city at that time, as anyone who was following those protests would know. They were sort of Les Mis style barricades at, at the beginning and end of, of Soy's, and there was one at each end of our Soy. Um, so I would have to walk from home to the office each morning, navigating my way around the red shirt checkpoints, if you like. Um, and eventually, as the tension wound up, I was out covering the protests one day and I had a call from my husband, Rowan, to say, uh, the army's been at the door, uh, the street's going to be a live fire zone, meaning that they'll be shooting uh, live automatic ammunition here and we need to evacuate because they're going to cut off the power and water. Um, so it was very close to home. In fact, it was where our home was. Um, the crew and I spent a week and a half or two weeks sleeping on the floor of the ABC office covering those protests while 
Rowan initially evacuated with the kids to a hotel and eventually, as it got worse and worse, took them out of the country altogether and back to Cambodia. Mm. The only um, similar experience I could report, I suppose, is, is the one of the tsunami where we were um, driving to a fun park uh, in the west of the city. I forget the name, it was like their Luna Park. And uh, Mark Laban, a colleague of ours, phones me in the morning, it was, you know, Boxing Day, and he says, Peter is Canadian. Peter, something's wrong. And um, he lives in Phuket in a high point of the island, uh, but looking over uh, Patong Beach, which was um, where the initial reports of the tsunami were coming from. And uh, I remember doing a U-turn on the freeway, heading back to um, the town and, and then going that day to, to Phuket, which was my family's playground. That's where we took the kids um, and still do go there for holidays. It's, um, it's, it, I felt violated um, by the presence of an event in a place where I spent sacred time with my family. Um, and it was a strange and disorienting experience because it was going to an event in your own home, quote unquote. I, mean, I, I feel like Bangkok still is my second home. Um, and not being able to function in a way where your body is presuming normality. You know, you go to Phuket, you're flying, you use your phone, you could drive up the road, buy an ice cream, go to the beach for the day. And all of that normality was seized from you in the same location. So you're confronted by this, 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 this disorder in a place where you have found great solemn order. Um, and I found that a very, very strange um, part of the effect of those stories is that it's, it, it is that sense of violation of your safe space. I think the other thing too with something like that and, and many things that I've worked on is that you know you are on your way out for a day with your family and then suddenly you're on covering you know the biggest thing to happen in a long time and you have to be instantly ready to jump all the time and, and that's one of the more gruelling things about being a foreign correspondent is being like a coiled spring with a state of heightened anxiety all the time and it doesn't matter if you're you know at the pool with the kids or out for dinner having a glass of wine or, or asleep uh, the foreign desk could call it at any moment and you need to drop everything and jump yeah how important is it that um in actually in both our cases we had at the time, partners who were from the business, who understood why we were there, understood what we were doing, and gave us the space to do it. I think, it, for me, it's been really important. Um, I, I don't know what it would have been like otherwise, but Rowan is my biggest supporter. Um, he can be quite pushy. So at times I would be, oh, I you really can't it. face we'll it. That's right, yeah. I, I can't face it, I can't do it. it. It's going to be terrible, I don't want to go. And his response to that would be, mate, you've got to go. Just get organised and go. Um, and I, I'm at my best when I'm um, working, concentrating on logistics and just getting the action happening. And, and sometimes it would take a nudge from Rowan to actually get me out the door. Um, and you know he, he really has been a great support and I think obviously having a partner who is a, a journalist is helpful. Okay. Now we'll come to this more as the conversation goes on but the flip side to this is the peril that others face, the risks that they take in, in their willingness to engage with us. Um, <laughs> it happened to me a number of times that people I probably still worry about uh, if I think about it, uh, I try not to. Um, who did you worry about the most? 
Um, there's a lot of fixes that we've worked with who I've worried about and I still worry about. Um, and, you know, the local people who help us in the field are absolutely crucial to what we're able to achieve. Um, I, I really think that a, a good fixer is what makes a successful assignment. Um, and the thing is that, you know, you're absolutely right, they take far greater risks than we do because in some countries there is a risk of being arrested, for example, or detained. Um, in rare cases that can be lengthy, uh, but frequently for a Western journalist that would result in a couple of days of detention and then deportation. But those local people who help us uh, can face months or years in prison or indeed just completely disappear. Um, I did have a fixer arrested in Zimbabwe once when I was filming a story undercover for foreign correspondent. Um, he was beaten and uh, obviously I was absolutely terrified that they would hold him indefinitely but in, in that case luckily uh, he was let out. And, and there are a number, number of people in different countries, Vietnam is another, who've taken great risks to help us to, to do what we do. Um, is everyone familiar with the term fixer? No. Yeah. Our lingua franca is known to everyone now, isn't it? <laughs> there are no secrets. <laughs> What's a fixer? Uh, sorry? What is a fixer? A, a fixer is, is literally quite what it, it is. Uh, someone who fixes things for you. Generally, it's a journalist. It's someone who arranges um, everything from uh, the interview with the Prime Minister down to the vehicle you go there in. Um, they are your, your eyes and ears on the ground, speakers of the, of the mother tongue of where you're going. Um, they're your best friend. Um, they're your very best friend. They can make or break you in a story. They're worth everything you pay them, if not more. Um, they make us look really good. Really good. And, and a bad fixer exposes all the flaws that exist amongst us, don't they? I mean, if you have a bad fixer, I mean, I can, I'll tell you an anecdote. This is a horrendous story about Malaysia. We had a fixer who, um, he turned out to be um, not what we thought. He, he over a period of time, um, had been a reliable uh, fixer for the ABC in Bangkok for our Malaysia stories. And I think I was about the eighth or ninth year of him being used. And um, turned out um, he had marital problems, uh, had hit the booze, and he'd just gone off the rails. And he'd arranged an entire itinerary for a foreign correspondent, a correspondent story that you never saw. That entailed an interview with the Prime Minister this incredible, extraordinary access that that should have been the clue. The, the degree of access was mysteriously good. And we got there and uh, rocked up to the Prime Minister's office and they said, never heard of you. And, and it all went downhill from there. And the poor guy had, um, had, had fictionalised the entire thing in order to make some money. Um, so, you know, beware the fixer. Um, one of the, of the stories of the year, arguably, is the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines 370. The way it's being dealt with by the Malaysian authorities at the moment is a reminder to both Zoe and I of the not-so-physical but the exhausting psychological perils of dealing with an authoritarian government, even that of Malaysia. Um, I can recall a story of once being taken aside at um, an airport by Mahathir Mohammed and his foreign minister waiting for a plane. They had time to spare the election day, so they took me aside and told me all about the importance of compliant media in guided democracies. Because um, we just had a press conference where I think I asked the Prime Minister if he was a bigot. Um, and 
he basically said he was. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk tonight a little bit about, about Malaysia because I think that story actually does open some windows into some of the perils of, of that culture clash that I think we experience in Southeast Asia, most directly in the context of probably Thailand, Singapore, uh, Malaysia. Um, those, those which are pretenders to democracy in either the structure of it or at least the idea of it. Um, although I have to say that in Singapore everything works except democracy. Um, I would, I'd ask you um, what your thoughts would be about how you see the Malaysia explanation of 370 in the context of, of dealing with a state that is not used to transparently dealing with the media and not used to the experience of being confronted by the media in a room like this and peppered with questions demanding pretty hard metrics on what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, it's been interesting but unsurprising to see the way that they've handled it. Um, I mean, it's funny, Australians holiday in Malaysia and see it as a very functional place, um, but uh, it, as Peter says, it's essentially an authoritarian regime holding on to power, um, what I'd like to call a, a fake democracy, where the opposition can really never win government because of the gerrymanders that are in place. Um, the mainstream media is entirely state-controlled, therefore there is no opposition voice ever in a newspaper or on television. Uh, the only dissident voices are, are via internet media and that's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, what that creates is a complete state of control by the government in the messaging to the Malaysian people. Um, there is no sort of public political conversation of, of any type and it's very rare for example for the Prime Minister or senior Malaysian politicians to submit to one-on-one uh, -on -one tough interviews of the sort that we see routinely every day on our uh, current affairs programs and listen to on the radio and if they do get done it would largely be done by the BBC or us or, or Al Jazeera if we managed to jag an interview with the Malaysian PM. Uh, certainly all in press conferences where you have journalists tackling uh, government ministers or the Prime Minister over hard issues, rarely if ever happen. Uh, I was at one with Hishamuddin Hussein actually who was then the Home Minister who's now the Acting Transport Minister handling the, the MH370 press conferences. Uh, back in 2011 in relation to the Australian government's proposed Malaysia solution. Um, there were three or four foreign journalists there. We were all sitting in the front row and we absolutely hammered the guy with questions. Um, I have to say he took it in relatively good cheer, um, but in the context of, wow, Australian journalists really ask tough questions, don't they? And a lot of questions in the press conference. And there were very few questions asked by Malaysian journalists. And if they were asked, they were... Dorothy Dix's effectively. So to see them uh, in front of these massive press conferences of international media, having to ask, answer hard, hard questions, having to be accountable uh, about how they've managed the situation of MH370 has been interesting. And I, I think they've found it very difficult to cope with because they simply are not used to having to give truthful answers to anything much because the, the level of uh, demanded accountability is very low. Yeah, I mean, it's a gruelling loss of face for them to some extent because it's in front of their own media and their own people, so that makes it that much worse. There's no, there's nowhere to hide when it's only uh, Daniel plus one hundred, you know, local journalists, <laughs> right? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting that um, it must have been after about the first week that the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak did turn up to front a press conference, um, given the, the hammering that the Malaysia Airlines staff and, and uh, the Transport Minister were receiving. That was an interesting response and it was obviously a tactic to um, get some of that face back uh, to be seen to be, you know, actually uh, available um, and, and answering some of those questions. But it, it's a struggle for them to deal with it because it's just not part of their, their media uh, politician culture, if you like. And if, if you have questions along the way, maybe rather than just saving them up for the end, let's, let's take them as, as we go. So if you do have any questions, um, raise your hand, please, because we maybe we can let the air out of the tyres a bit that way. Yeah. Um, the thing about Malaysia also is, is that, and this really struck me last week, was that uh, Hishmadeen is the grandson of the guy who founded uh, UMNO. He is the cousin of the Prime Minister. He is likely to be the next Prime Minister. So there's a sense of an hereditary autocracy there. Um, and that in itself is, is a peril um, to even say that, because to say that is to imply all that it does imply. And it's the same thing with, you know, when I think it was Farish and Economic Review got done uh, for slander in Singapore for suggesting that um, the father and the son arrangement is somehow um, implying something other than an improper transfer of power. Heaven forbid. I think it's true to say that in a lot of Southeast Asian countries you have political dynasties. I mean, it's obvious in the Philippines, that's your most classic example. Um, but even in Cambodia, for example, which is a, another fake democracy, uh, still held by Hun Sen and the ruling party, and the likely successor, you know, is Hun Sen's son um, in Thailand. Again, uh, political dynasties, the Shinawat family um, holding, holding power currently, although it's in a state of flux, but it, you very much do have um, a lot of family links within Southeast Asian politics. Let, let's go there then. Um, Zoe did live for a time in Phnom Penh in, in Cambodia. She went back a number of times after she moved to Bangkok to be the correspondent. So just tell us the story of how you got to be in Phnom Penh and what it was like as, as, a, as, a, you know, as a citizen rather than a journalist. I think you approach it quite differently when you're living in a country and you're not reporting on it because you just exist. You don't sort of run around looking for stories to do. Um, my husband, Rowan, who's also a journalist, as we've said, was appointed to an ABC AusAid joint project with the World Bank to train reporters for the public broadcaster in Phnom Penh for, for radio. So we lived there for a year when our, our children were very young. Um, I think what was good about that is that I wasn't reporting on it, but I was absorbing what was going on in the country and, and what was going on around Southeast Asia at the time um, as, an, as an interested participant, uh, because I was living in, in Phnom Penh just as a citizen, reading the papers, uh, observing things like evictions of people in slums that were happening around our, our house, people you know, overnight um, having their homes bulldozed. I'd be taking my son to creche uh, one morning, I'd come around a corner and an entire suburb of shacks would have been flattened. People would be standing around weeping, the bulldozers would be still there, the army would be there holding the, the people back. Um, and then I'd continue to take my, my son to creche rather than stopping to do a, a story. Um, and I think I 
absorbed a lot of context um, about what was happening in, in Southeast Asia when I was living there without being a reporter. And I think that really helped me actually when I did start working. Yeah. Did you read a lot of books about Southeast Asian history and politics? Yeah, I mean, that's what happens, isn't it, when you live in a country? You start reading everything that's been written about it. And, and certainly when I was in South Africa, I read a, a lot of um, books too. But in Cambodia, I mean, having such a horrendous history um, and one that I really wanted to develop an understanding of, living there for, for some time, not reporting, and therefore having a little bit of time to read about the, the Khmer Rouge and... Um, you know, what actually happened was also very valuable. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt that obligation um, in Bangkok. I, I arrived in early 2002 on my posting, and as much as I knew a lot, uh, I, I think I knew the architecture of the story, what I didn't get was the bits in between, you know, the brickwork. And um, I think I, I set about a, a process which ended up with becoming two bookshelves and sort of a master's level you know, obsession about every country, knowing every character and what was driving every character, because I wanted to have that sense of context because I felt like I was going to be faking for you if I didn't do that. So I had this sort of this sense of obligation that we had to, had to be across it, not just to appear to be across it, but actually be across it. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, this is an, the advantage of having correspondents who are based in countries rather than just flying over to cover a story when, mm. when it happens, mm. is that your your coverage becomes much more nuanced because you have that, that cultural awareness, that deeper political understanding, that, that historical understanding. And then no matter what event or issue it is that you might be talking about, you bring all that um, to, to the table when you're talking on the TV or the radio, and it, it really adds a lot. It does. I think it's, it's, it, it lightens or wanes a phrase here and there, but it's just, it's just the nuance that you can... I mean, like, we can tell. We can read the correspondence pretty well, I think, and you can tell when someone actually has a sense of, a sense of these places, and I think it's... As I said, I, I felt that obligation. I almost feel like we ABC people are almost ambassadorial in the sense that we are there with a with a a, um, a higher duty than the commercials, for example, because we are on your dime and we do go there as a representative of the ABC, and, and there is an obligation to, to really get it right. The other thing is that. It might be surprising to hear, but the ABC is quite high profile in these countries. Yeah. Um, the, the Bangkok Bureau has been there for four decades. Um, so, you know, we very much cut it compared to other international broadcasters who are there. You know, we can command the big interviews. The, the material that we put out does get attention. And that's fantastic, but it's also, therefore, even more important that it does have that, that nuance and that context. And because it's not only people in Australia who are listening to and watching to what we put out, particularly now, um, with the rise of social media and internet, a lot of people who are in the region are also watching and listening to, to our coverage. And they're the people who are living in those countries. Did you ever get a phone call and an offer of a cup of tea at the Foreign Ministry in Bangkok? Yes, I did. Want to yes. talk about that? Um, it was very early on in my posting. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how much I should say about it. Uh, but yes, there was a, a moment quite early where I was uh, called in to have a, a meeting with the Director General of the Foreign Ministry. Uh, and I sat with her in a lovely uh, gold room uh, in a very fancy building with half a dozen people madly writing down every word I said and also recording it. 
where she said very politely over a cup of tea, if you or anyone from your organisation ever does that again, you'll be thrown out of the country. <laughs> but are you pleased to be in Thailand? <laughs> are you having a nice time here? <laughs> um, what was the reason for that? Uh, well, the reason for that is, um, you know, basically that the ABC had done a story um, which was deemed to be critical of Thailand's monarchy. Uh, it wasn't done by me, it was done by a team out of Sydney. Um, but this is a very sensitive issue in Thailand. You cannot criticise the king uh, in any way, um, uh, implied or real. Uh, and that seems to be being extended now to other members of the royal family too. Um, it's a really problematic issue for foreign and local journalists who work in Thailand um, because it means that a, a key element of Thai politics and, and the sort of uh, Thai social structure and the way things work in Thailand just doesn't get discussed. It can't get talked about at all. Um, because if it does, you'll be either put in jail or thrown out of the country and more likely put in jail. Um, so in that case, the, the ABC deemed that it was important to um, have some coverage of the issue um, and did. Uh, but of course there was blowback on the, the staff and myself who were in the country. Um, to the point that we evacuated the staff from the Bureau and essentially put them into hiding uh, for a few weeks because of not only the chances of all of us being arrested and thrown in jail, but nationalist extremists um, perhaps firebombing the, the Bureau or, or attacking the staff in the street because this is a very divisive issue. Um, and, you know, talking about press freedom, this is one of the... Um, quite specific methods that used in, in Thailand, as an example, of controlling the press. Um, if you say that, you will be guilty of les majest, you will be jailed um, probably for a very long time. Uh, if someone makes a comment on your blog about that, as soon as that comment is posted, that will be breaking the law and then as the webmaster, you could be arrested and jailed for that too, probably for many years. So it's a method of um, restricting freedom of speech and as a method of, of control. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, the, uh, the Thai government uses what Zoe's talking about, Les Majest charges as an effective weapon for intimidation. Um, there's a, a very well-known case, I think you reported to you, uh, this is Chirinuch yep. Premchai Porn, the editor of the online newspaper Prajatai, um, who uh, was uh, prosecuted for comments critical of the monarchy and an 11 year jail sentence was handed to uh, uh, Sonia, the editor of The Voice of Taxon bi-monthly. Two noteworthy examples. In the context of what's going on at the moment though in Bangkok, how much does that Les Majest issue um, overlay the difficulty for us as well as for Thai press in discussing the strange goings on in Thailand, the red shirts and yellow shirts, the unresolved question of who runs the country in the very strange issue of why it is the ties amassing in the street to demand less democracy? Yeah, well, I think it's really difficult. Um, and, you know, I'll be careful with what I say because I do want to be able to return to, to Thailand. But it, it, it's essentially um, a, a missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle of your coverage. Um, so, you know, if you could say simply that the yellow shirts are... Uh, backers of the elites uh, and nationalists and the red shirts are uh, a conglomeration of uh, rural 
people and, and working class people uh, and a, a developing lower middle class in Bangkok. Um, that's the sort of simple situation, but it, it's known that uh, obviously the yellow shirts are, are backed by or aligned with the monarchy. Um, and the question is, who's calling the shots? And that's something that even to, to that degree can't really be discussed. Or if you do discuss it, you're on very shaky ground. And for the reasons that I've just outlined, um, may not be reporting on Thailand ever again. And to the extent that um, presumably you spoke in code in the office too? Yeah, you can't, you can't even talk about it over a cup of tea. Um, it, it, to get arrested for it, I mean, it can be reported uh, by a citizen, for, by, as, as citizen's arrest, if you like. Um, and the onus is on the accused to prove that they didn't say uh, anything that was illegal, not the other way around. Yeah, and um, a colleague of ours, Jonathan Head from the BBC, they came after him for a while too, didn't they? Yeah, so a colleague of ours from the BBC was hosting this, this type of event um, and someone on the panel uh, said something that was deemed to be les majest and Jonathan was drawn into that. Um, in the end he left Thailand for a while, although he, he says it's not for that reason and he eventually came back and he's back working for the BBC in Bangkok now. So, um, you know, after a while it died down, but it is a very sensitive issue. Um, when you were in Bangkok, obviously that was the base, that was your home, uh, but you travelled to places like Vietnam, where I, I, in all the years I was there, never went. Um, one of the great um, misses for me. Um, it is though a place where journalists, bloggers and human rights activists are routinely jailed for their reporting. Vietnam has, in, in later years, stepped up its information control to the point of being close to catching up with its big brother China. Independent news providers there are subjected to enhanced internet surveillance, draconian directives, waves of arrests and sham trials. And according to Reporters Without Borders, Vietnam continues to be the world's second largest prison for bloggers and netizens. Zoe, you met some of them. What happened? Yeah, I mean, it's a very hard country to cover um, because to go and work in Vietnam as a foreign journalist, you have to uh, make an application to the government telling them what you plan to report on, get their approval, and then take a government minder with you everywhere you go. Therefore, obviously, you cannot do anything involving people who disagree with the government, not only because they'll instantly be arrested, but they'd be too terrified to talk to you. Um, I also found it very difficult to report on, so I essentially decided that I would get into Vietnam before I left the posting. Uh, so in the middle of last year, uh, the cameraman David Leland and I went into Vietnam as tourists and did a lot of interviews with dissidents and bloggers uh, behind closed doors in a secret location and were also in the dead of night uh, able to interview families of um, human rights activists who are currently in jail in Vietnam. Um, we were followed from that location by the secret police actually and it was um, a bit dicey and uh, looked like we might all be arrested, including our local fixer, but we managed to give the, the secret police the shake. Um, but the thing about Vietnam is that it has all of these very vague laws um, that are deliberately vague and designed to uh, restrict dissident activity. So anything that is harmful to national security, for example, uh, is against the law, which is a pretty much a, a catch-all phrase to stop anyone from, from opposing the government. Um, 
and Peter's right. I mean, there are a lot of, of bloggers uh, and dissidents in Vietnam who are active online because of a very high take-up of internet there. Um, but there's very heavy monitoring of the internet and there are new laws. There's a decree 72 restricting internet freedom. So basically what that does is to prohibit any blogs or social media except those that share personal information. So any dissemination of news or other information is against the law. So again, it's a real catch-all that's designed to enable the authorities to arrest its opponents. When you did the stories, um, how worried were you about the identity of the people you spoke to? About whether they'd be arrested or? Yeah, whether they'd be blowback. I was really worried. Um, I mean, it's not the first time I've done that type of thing. It, it's a very difficult thing to, to do because you know how much risk you're putting them at. Um, that particular trip, we spent about well, maybe four or five months setting it up. We've had a lot of conversations um, and sort of pre-interviewing of the people who we were going to speak with. Um, and a lot of those conversations were around the risks to them, um, where we would do the interviews and, and you know, obviously making um, very clear that, you know, they were aware of, of what could happen to them. But the thing is, you don't need to tell them that. I mean, they know that better than us. Um, the thing is that there are dissidents who want that story to be told, who understand that for anything to change, people need to know that this is happening. Um, at the moment, very few people even know about this, um, other than sort of Human Rights Watch press releases. Who hears from a Vietnamese dissident or the family of uh, a Vietnamese human rights lawyer who's been thrown in prison and not able to see his family for a couple of years and has sort of never been heard from again? It's a story that has to be told and there are some very brave people there who are prepared to participate in our telling of it. And across the border in, in Cambodia, when you did stories there that were confronting the powers that be about their behaviour, you know, like construction stories and, and bulldozing, how, relative to, to, Cam to Vietnam, how much trouble, how much danger are people there in Cambodia in as well? There's an increasing um, sort of limitation on freedom of speech in Cambodia. And this is really concerning and it's been happening, sort of started happening um, four or five years ago and it seems to be tightening up further and further. Um, and it's partly linked to the fact that there's also an increasing um, dissident voice. Um, there's a you know, developing dissatisfaction by members of the Cam Cambodian community around things like the forced eviction of people from their houses um, in favour of development, their, their lack of uh, any power um, or ability to have a say over what's happening in their country. And it seems to me that the more of those groups start questioning the situation, the harder the government cracks down. Uh, and we've seen, uh, for example, a group of women, the BK13, who were arrested by the government and spent substantial time in jail because of their uh, protests over forced evictions in their community uh, and were eventually released because of the direct intervention of Hillary Clinton, among other things. Um, but also there's another high profile case involving the owner of a radio station who was thrown in jail uh, for essentially fermenting unrest, uh, blamed for fermenting protests. 
uh, he was held and has since been released, but now he's applying for TV station licences um, and is starting a new set of protests. And just last week, uh, riot police forcibly dispersed those protests, injuring a number of the protesters. Um, so the, the Cambodian government doesn't respond well to, to dissent either. And particularly at the moment, where for the first time in a long time, there are questions about the power of the government and, and these sudden increasing and large opposition protests that are developing. And to a large extent, they get a rails run in Cambodia. Um, this, is, this is a state that, um, it's a country that seems to survive real accountability by the donors which keep it alive. Um, partly due to the fact that it's simply too big or too dangerous, the idea of its failure is too dangerous. Because everyone remembers the Khmer Rouge and everyone remembers disorder and there's a there's a high desire and a, and a good one for order but order at what cost because we have enabled the west the donors have enabled partly uh, hun sen to continue to exist and he has become a larger monster than the caricatures we laugh about this is a guy who once shot a television in anger you can get the thing to tune properly um, God knows how he's still alive. He smokes two packs a day of the nastiest cigarettes I've ever smelled in my life. Um, and you're right, he's, he's setting up, he's, he's set up an inheritance scheme for the whole, it's a Ponzi scheme, for his whole family. Uh, the general's sons have married, you know, the politician's daughters and vice versa, and they've all gone off and got nice, clean, uh, quote-unquote, educations abroad in, in nice institutions, including here in Australia. And we have education-wise enabled the next level of the regime to go back with their profit and loss books and uh, continue the, the chicanery and to continue what is a gangster economy, essentially. Um, enabled, as I say, by, by the world institutions. And it's a story that I think I'm going to get back at this one day. That it's a story that I think needs to be told about what, what the West does in enabling some of these people because we are um, uh, propping them up. And Hun Sen you know, gets to be in this absurd situation of hosting Julie Bishop, um, who goes there seriously, it would seem, proposing the idea of putting asylum seekers in Cambodia. I mean, Cambodia? This is a country where people uh, earn a dollar a day. Um, the asylum seekers uh, would be much better off than the average Cambodian. Um, Cambodians were in uproar at the idea that that would happen a few weeks ago. Um, we interviewed Sam Rainsy on, on The World Today. Um, do, do you have difficulties coming to terms with the, um, the idea that, that we, the West, are in some senses the enablers of this madness? Yeah, and it's not the first country it's happened in. And Zimbabwe was a, another case, um, and Robert Mugabe was lauded by the West, and we all know what's, what's happened there. Uh, and Hun Sen is, unfortunately, the same type of personality. I think what's interesting at the moment, though, is that because of the tragedy of the Khmer Rouge, the uh, average age in Cambodia is very low. So you have a lot of um, smart, optimistic young people who are very internet savvy, uh, who are starting to see what's happening beyond their borders and um, also able to campaign on particular causes. And it's something that is difficult for the government to control because it likes to um, appear to be a relatively free society and so it doesn't want to crack down on that entirely and what that's allowing is it just the development of a, a higher level of political awareness 
among the community in Cambodia. And a, a lot of that is what these recent protests are about. Uh, are there any questions at the moment about this as we go along? Yeah, at the back. Hi, Maha Obeyed, freelance journalist. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. The only thing that really jumped out at me, and probably having um, been in Beirut for the past 20 years, is the injustice. And how can you reconcile something like that? Um, just as an example, last week in my little street in Petersham, they did road work and they were working all night and I complained to the RMS and I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm complaining about road works when I've got this beautiful new road. Meanwhile, you know, in Beirut, Syrian refugees line the streets. People don't live safely anymore because they're worried. They don't know who's in the street, what's happening to their daughters, their jobs, their safety. So what's your question? Um, what about the injustice that you see? How do you reconcile that when you come back to a beautiful place like Australia where, you know, the milk can't go up without an uproar and so forth? Big question, Zoe. <laughs> I think it's really difficult. And I've only been back for three months. And, you know, there is a, a tendency to come back and think, oh, gosh, Australia, what are you complaining about um, <coughs> compared to That's a good question. <laughs> the, the sorts of circumstances that other people have to endure? Um, but, you know, everyone exists in their own <coughs> environment, don't they? And they, they need things for work, to work for them in, in the environment that they're in. Um, and so, you know, people complain about things in Australia, that's fine. But... Um, it, there is a much bigger um, set of issues out there for people who are living in these sorts of countries where you know, not only are they dealing with um, governments of the, the sort that we've been talking about, but they're also dealing with often abject poverty, um, frequently of late terrible natural disasters um, and having to rebuild from those um, and that's becoming a, a sort of common issue across Southeast Asia and all of the other things that, that people have to deal with and yet they just keep on keeping on um, You know much as I find it frustrating when I come back here and hear the sort of first world problems um, When I'm away, I feel so inspired by the people who are in other countries keeping on despite all the adversity that they face and You know, that's one of the things that keeps me going to do these um, these stories actually to not only always show the, the negatives and the tough things that are happening but also to show those little glimmers of inspiration that we find uh, among these people who just manage to to keep on with life and and smile in spite of everything that they encounter yeah I, I don't think you can take on too much of this stuff and that's you know was one of the learnings of my life is that You've got to um, accept things are the way they are, and you, we are not God. We can't fix these things. It's up to um, other people to do that. We can shed some light along the way, but that's our role. That's it. Um, we can't fix it. Um, and, and Australia's exceptionalism, um, you know that idea that we are somehow exceptional, uh, that this stuff happens to other people? Well, the reason we're like that is because Australia is exceptional. So there's, there's a balancing reason for why we can be so perceived to be so blasé or uninterested in the rest of the world and that's actually in some senses a relief after a while you can come back and just you know chill out here where where you know where the road goes is an issue or if you know someone wants to frack or not frack is a big deal for someone I mean I could care less half the time um, it's because not because it's not important but because it's relatively unimportant 
to you know the happy continuum of my life. Um, and I think you have to have a bit of balance about those things. Um, but what, one of the things I wanted to talk to Zoe about before we wrap up, because we are coming close to time, it's uh, eight minutes to the hour. Are we going to quarter past? Seven, okay, we've got eight minutes. The, um, the notion that, that I think I spoke about a fair bit in my book, Grief is Contagion. Um, one of the stories you covered that struck me as being one that must have been coming close to the bone for you was in Laos, the plane crash. You wrote rather movingly afterwards about what that was like. Can you just share that story with the audience about what happened and, and how it affected you? Yeah, so it was a rainy night in Bangkok. It was absolutely pouring, just torrential rain. And it hadn't been all that busy a day, so I wandered home to try to beat the storm failed uh, and got home saturated and uh, the kids were home from school and um, so I was sitting around with them uh, reading them a story and my husband was away I'm not sure whether he was in Pakistan or where he was but he wasn't there um, and then I um, I think put the kids to bed or whatever and was um, just looking at Twitter and and I got a message from my producer saying there's been a plane crash in Laos and so instantly, uh, unfortunately, uh, the partial reaction is who's on the plane uh, with that type of incident? Um, what nationalities are on the aircraft? Um, much as I find that frustrating as a journalist, actually, that, that is the reality of the situation. We're an Australian broadcaster. Are there any Australians on the plane? So Jum, uh, my producer, and I took off back into the office uh, and I left the children with Nisha, our nanny, and still torrential rain, um, sitting in the office for, for a few hours, making phone calls and trying to work out what had happened. It became apparent that a Lao Airlines uh, turboprop had crashed into the Mekong River at Paxay uh, in southern Laos. Um, and it was a couple of hours in that we found out that there were six Australians on the flight. Um, and then these sorts of details start slipping out um, with something like this. Uh, six Australians on the flight, um, and then it became clear that uh, of those four of them were members of one family, um, and then it later uh, the penny dropped for me that two of those family were young children, and one of those um, was a baby sitting on his mother's lap, um, and I I felt absolutely sick when I just had this moment sitting at my computer typing, oh. There was a baby the numbers are wrong because there was a baby who wasn't in a seat because it didn't sort of fit with the information that we'd been given um, and it then became obvious that the crew and i would have to fly into the typhoon uh, to laos to to cover the plane crash um, which seems very counterintuitive to to fly into a storm that's probably down the plane in a plane uh, to cover the crash and I had to leave my children um, with our nanny because Rowan was away um, to cover what I knew was a terrible tragedy um, involving people who were just on holidays or doing their work. And it did really upset me because it's one of those um, incidents where you can transfer yourself or anyone you know onto that aircraft. My husband and I and um, my sister-in-law and her family had been holidaying in Cambodia only two weeks before on exactly the same aircraft, flying in this ridiculous weather, 
um, and you just think, well, it could have been any of us, it could have been anyone we know having a holiday in Laos and they've just lost their lives and that, that family is gone. Um, and then, of course, when we arrived in Paxay to cover it, uh, the um, organisation of management of the incident was absolutely shocking. Um, you know, I always say to people, if you're ever going to get hurt or killed, don't do it in Southeast Asia, <laughs> because it, it was just an absolute nightmare of um, disorganised retrieval of the people who were on the aircraft um, and crowds of people around a makeshift morgue and, and all those sorts of awful things that you see when you do this work, um, to the point that we actually found a body in the river and had to organise for the authorities to come and get it. Um, and certainly it's not the worst disaster that I've covered by any stretch, but it's one that affected me a lot, and particularly, um, as I've said, because it's relatable and because there were young children involved and the children were not dissimilar age to my own. Yeah. Um, the, the landlord will throw us out soon, so we've got about two minutes for a quick wrap round of questions. Um, very briefly, please. Um, Zoe and Pete, just to Thailand, um, in terms of the 10th anniversary this year of the Boxing Day tsunami, um, how should the ABC present that story, um, particularly from a cultural sensitivity point of view? The Thais move on very quickly from death. Um, they don't want to remember in, in, in some part. Yeah. The second part of the question for both of you, have you at any time had the Australian Embassy in Thailand contact you to either give you briefings or warnings about the, the direction in which you were taking the story. Uh, James Wise seems to be a very effective ambassador. Trudy McGowan was down in, in Laos. What relationship does the ABC have with our overseas missions, noting that a million Australians go to Thailand every year and more Australians die in Thailand than Bali Sorry, every year? You go first. Uh, well, on the embassy issue, yes, I mean, I've had great relationship with the Australian Embassy in, in Thailand. Um, I know the, the ambassador, I know many of the staff. Uh, yes, they have called me, particularly on Les Majest issues, just to say, it's our official role to warn you that if you do that, you could be arrested. Um, and that's, that's sort of something that they're required to do. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I've had a good relationship uh, with them, probably better than with other missions in the region, um, but perhaps that was because I was based in Bangkok. But yeah, I've, I've found them to be quite effective. You've got to keep your expectations low when you work with foreign affairs, I think, in the sense that, no, I don't mean to be trite. It's true. You, it's true. You do, you, in this sense, um, they're not there to help you, um, they're there to work for the government. Um, you don't want to um, entirely rely upon them for the facts you get because they are still an agent of the government. I'm not saying there's a problem with that, but that's what they are. Um, you need to um, double, uh, get uh, two sources or three sources in some cases and uh, just ring out the foreign office uh, or foreign ministry people is, is not enough. And inevitably and reflexively, they tend to defer to Canberra. There's almost not a mission uh, except the ones we deal with in our hometown, Bangkok, where you don't get the... Um, uh, can you refer to Canberra? So there's almost, in a bureau sense, there's no point being overseas because all information comes out of a small office in, um, in a building in Canberra and that's the way it's been for quite some time. But as long as, mostly as long as Howard was in power, it became more concentrated in recent years um, to the extent that um, 
I actually had the ambassador in Bangkok, I won't embarrass him by naming him, who rang me back one day to say, um, Peter, off the record, no comment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say too, just very briefly, that you know, with something like the Lao uh, plane crash, as um, <coughs> Tim says, there were a number of embassy officials there, um, but they really can't help you very much because of all of those bureaucratic things. Yeah. Um, and they do refer you back to Canberra, um, and so I would never rely on them for information in a situation like that, other than to say, uh, I know this, is this right? Yeah. And then they may be able to say, yes, you, you can go with that. But I'll tell you where they were brilliant, <clears throat> and all power to them, was the tsunami and the Bali bombing. I have never seen them as brilliant as they were at the Bali bombing. I mean, that, I can't tell you the scale that that was for the people who were there. It, it, it was the biggest mass casualty event that any of us at that point had, had been to. And from John Howard down, who was outstanding there, I mean, whether you like him or not, John Howard was fantastic on the ground for us in Bali. He was exceptional. He walked into a room once, which was twice as packed as this, and they were about to eat him alive um, because they were hungry for information and they were a pack of hacks from around the world. And he just charmed them. And, and gave them, um, he gave them facts, he gave them information, he, he dealt with them as people. Um, he didn't put the, the wall up. Um, he, he was John Howard, and you know that pastoral sense you get out of Howard sometimes, that, that he's not just the, you know, the wooden prime minister, he's actually the, the feeling father and grandfather. You got that, you got that moment with him. And it was one of those exceptional moments for John Howard, was statesmanlike, um, incredibly statesmanlike. And so were all the diplomats who were there with him. They were fantastic, including one uh, who's no longer with us, who died in a plane crash there some years later. She was absolutely outstanding. So you're getting your money's worth out of these people. They're fantastic in their day and on, on the moment. A lot of the time, it's kind of knucklehead stuff doesn't really matter, it's sort of, you know, Aussies in shit, basically, you know, a lot of bad stuff. Um, and me among them at one point. And, 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 uh, and you know, and, and from the inside looking out, as a, as a sort of anecdote, I thought they were fantastic in dealing with me as well. I mean, they were never uh, doing me any favours, and favours were not sought from them. And, you know, there was, at the time, I think, gossip that, you know, the Prime Minister will look after you or whatever. Absolute rubbish. I would never have asked for it. Uh, he wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have accepted it. It, would, it just doesn't happen. Those, those stories are not true. And as to your question about the tsunami, I forgot that it was 10 years coming up. I don't know. Uh, we should mark it. But you make a very good point, Tim. Um, the, the Thais um, and many Asian cultures deal with grief in a much more... Uh, in a different way to us. Um, better? I don't know, but they seem to have moved on within a year. I remember going back to the first anniversary and being struck by how grounded Thai people are in their awareness that they weren't running from the death, they weren't running from the grief, but they put it in its appropriate place. You know, there's a little box in our heads where grief goes and they had it worked out. And I found that not just you know in hindsight thinking about myself, but also thinking about the people I dealt with at the time who were Caucasians or Australians or, or, or Europeans who were smashed a year later, still very smashed by the whole event and, and very sad, sad uh, people who had not come to grips with not just what happened to them, but what they saw. Um, I spoke of mass casualty in Bali, but you think about what happened in the tsunami and it's beaches of blood and bodies. It is horrendous what we saw. 
but the Thai people dealt with it um, in a way because they had to physically pick it up and deal with it. You know, the body snatchers, this dreadful expression for the ambulance crews in Thailand. They are um, Chinese charities, there's two or three of them, and in the absence of an ambulance service, these people go around and do the ambulatory work. They collect people from accident scenes in Bangkok um, and cut them off to hospital and the dead. And um, I've done a foreign correspondent with them. And it's an enlightening experience because from high and low society, these people come together in an active um, uh, Buddhist charity to, to make merit. They believe they make merit for themselves by doing good for other people in this way. Um, and I think it's partly the solution is, is that the Thai people um, had to deal with their dead in a physical way, had to touch them, wrap them, bury them, go to the, to the temple with them. Um, they're very much, it's a, it's, a, it's a tangible experience, death, in these cultures. They're not removed from it in the way that we are with, you know, quick into a van, into a box, burn it, whatever. It's, you know, we are, we are a step apart from our grief process it is a, in a generic experience, and I think that goes to the very heart of how they deal with grief. Um, any other questions? Yes, in the middle. Hi, uh, Philip Lee. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Um, just a quick question. Uh, when, as a foreign correspondent, when you're um, dealing with, with grief and you say um, we, we're one step removed from, from um, the, these people's grief, um, how do we get back into reality and where do we really draw the line between um, our personal lives um, as an individual and our profession as a journalist, or do we um, more or less combine them together? Oh, that's a very dangerous area you're getting into. Grief is contagious. I, you know, I, I, this is up in headlights. Don't do it. You know, you, you've, got, you've got to separate yourself from it. If you want to be useful to the audience, you can't be immersed in it to the extent where you're no longer functional. You need to get into it just enough where you are human and empathetic and you can relay the experience and be, be relevant and meaningful in the story. But beyond that, you have to protect yourself. You I, have think, to. I think when you're working, um, you're working too. And you, I mean, I, I do find it difficult to divorce myself from it and I do feel that sadness. And um, for me, it's not, it's not seeing the bodies that really confronts me, it's witnessing the, the grief of people. Um, and I do think it's important to um, have strong empathy with those people in order to be able to um, tell the world what, what has happened. Um, but I think that when you're working, you're busy and you're thinking about the, the logistics of what you're doing partly, and to a degree, um, that does separate you um, from the victims because you, you have to keep functioning in order to do your work. That's what you're there for. And that's the best thing that you can do for them, to tell their story. Yeah. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of time. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for coming along tonight. We really appreciate that you, you did take the time to come, and I hope we've um, given you something to think about. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates, and you'll be the first to know about upcoming Walkley news and events.